Uh, it may strike you as surprising, but when I was a teenager, I was a bad kid. Um, no other some laugh. No, no other excuses. I was a bad kid. I did stuff just to be bad. I challenged my parents, and I remember my mom saying multiple times, she said, you know that when you have kids, they're going to be twice as bad as you. And I, and I just did some math in my head, and I said, well, if that's true, if that's true, then it would only take a few generations for us to all be as bad as we possibly could, so that doesn't make sense, mom. Yeah, she appreciated that a lot. She was just repeating something that she heard from her mom and that she heard from her mom. Trying to do anything they could to get me to behave. And as parents, we know how all that happens, is that we will try absolutely anything to get our kids just to do the right thing once. Didn't work for me. It was a scare tactic to keep me out of trouble. But what if there were some truth in what my mom said? A few years ago, a professor at Emory University in Atlanta did a study that showed how mice inherit specific traits from their parents. And what they did was they gave these mice, uh, they had a fruity odor that they gave to the mice, and they, every time the odor would come around, they would shock the foot of the mouse. And they did that repeatedly. They, they made them afraid of the fruity odor Mice were trained to fear the smell, knowing that whenever that smell came, a shock would follow after. Less than two weeks after starting this training, the researcher allowed the mice to mate. And the offspring showed an increased startle to the fruity smell, even when they've never been shocked before. The offspring of the offspring had the same reaction. Now, what was apparent in this research that more studies needed to be done, but the question lingers, what is it that we inherit from our parents or from our grandparents or from our great-grandparents? From a Christian perspective, we know this. We know that we inherited a sin nature that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation, beginning with Adam in the garden. We also know that our DNA is passed down to our offspring. And for some of us here, that's really a shame for our children, isn't it? They get all of our worst characteristics, and some of, us, some of them unfortunately look like us. But what about everything else? Is it possible that fear can be passed down? What about the effects of our sinful choices that we've made? I'm not a scientist, and I know nothing about the brain, but it's interesting that this research supports what we see in Genesis chapter 9. See, after the events of the flood in Genesis 6 through 8, chapter 9 gives us hope. God's promise to humanity, there, there's a covenant given by God that when seen through the unfolding story of God's work, points to the last and great covenant that finds its fulfillment in Christ. But at this point in Genesis chapter 9, Christ had not yet come. And in fact, Noah lived a few thousand years before Jesus, so he didn't have the blessings of history and the entirety of Scripture that we have. But God still blessed Noah because of his faithfulness. God commanded Noah to be fruitful and multiply, and he gave Noah and his family and everyone else that came after the freedom to thankfully eat plants and animals, especially the animals. All Noah had to do was never mess up. Pretty simple. All he had to do was never question God's wisdom or challenge his sovereignty. 
Noah was given everything that he needed, and all he had to do was be perfect. Now, we know how Adam failed in his relationship with God. It didn't take very long, and it barely took time for him to give into temptation, which then funneled down to all of us. The question is, if we started in Genesis chapter 1, and we see the promise in Genesis chapter 3 that a, a Messiah would come to save, well, God destroys the world save for one family. Noah kind of has that vibe, doesn't he? The idea that, yes, Noah is the one that's going to save the day. Noah is going to be the one that fulfills everything that Adam could not do. The Bible says he was faithful to God. There's nothing in Scripture that says he had a problem with sin on the ark. So he can do it, right? Well, to start this story, Noah had three sons. Nothing said that he didn't have more, but there's a, a clear parallel being drawn between Adam and Noah. They each had three sons, and there's more similarities. Both were of the same profession. Both were men of the soil. Both share the language of the curse and of the blessing. Both experience the shame of nakedness, and both have devastating family problems that are brought on by their initial sin. It's not an accident. That, 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 that this literary device is used in Scripture to show us there's parallels between Adam and Noah. But there are differences. Where Adam is kicked out of the garden, Noah is not removed from anything. But even through these differences, the similarities are obvious. So in our minds, this must mean Noah accomplished this. That Noah did what Adam could not do, right? We hope. Scripture doesn't tell us how much time passed from when Noah stepped off the ark to verse 21, but it probably wasn't very long. It's not good to assume things so much when we read the Bible, but if you know Adam's heart from a few chapters earlier, you know that Noah's heart is the exact same. What we know about Adam is found in Genesis 8:21. Flip back a page and see what God says. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This was before our text today. So you know what happens? Noah steps foot off the ark and a little idol factory inside of his chest starts to work. Noah, like Adam, sins. Noah planted a vineyard and drank so much that he passed out and he was so drunk that he didn't even realize that he was laying there naked for everyone to see. We're only nine chapters into the Bible, and we're already seeing sins be repeated over and over. The drunkenness of Noah, just like the weakness and failure of leadership from Adam, should prove to you that every single person saved Jesus is sinful from our birth. Our hearts desire more than what God has given us. Think about your own experience, and I think you'll see this. Even if you're an eternal optimist, always seeing people in a positive light, you know that deep down, every single one of us is infected with the disease of sin. Some of you and some of us can bury it deep. We can hide it. We can, we can hide it somewhere else where people don't see it. We, we can keep our, our, our spiritual or emotional or mental blinds closed so that the rest of the world doesn't see what's going on inside of our lives. But the fact of the matter is, you know your life. You know your heart. You know what goes on in here. You know that you're not satisfied with what God has given to you. I know that I'm not. 
There are new people, new situations, but the heart of Noah and his sons is the same heart as Adam and Eve, and it's the same heart that we carry too. And in verses 18 and 19, we introduce Noah's three sons into this story. Verses 20 through 27 show us the depravity, the same kind of depravity that we see in Genesis 3 when sin is entered into the world. Do you, do you notice that God provided for his, fa- uh, for his creation and they rebelled? God recreated earth and everything in it and it didn't take very long for humanity to rebel again. And we see this story happening over and over throughout the Old Testament where the Israelites were given all that they needed and it was never enough. And they rebelled and then they ran back to God the minute that it got too difficult. God blessed them again. And that cycle continues and it's the same cycle that continues to this day with us. The sin for Noah begins when he gets drunk. It's interesting to note that the Bible doesn't condemn him but it stays silent about this. It's interesting because the Bible is very clear about the danger and sin of drunkenness in Ephesians, Galatians, Luke, Proverbs, and Isaiah. We see warnings about drunkenness, but the Bible here is silent on the morality of his drunkenness and even his semi-public nudity. When we hear silence, though, we immediately think one of two things. Either things are really, really bad or things are really, really good. If you're married and your spouse is quiet towards you, One of those. Silence is very rarely neutral. When you're dating, silence shows one of two things. Either the person is really into you but just doesn't want to talk about it, or they don't want anything to do with you. Same thing in marriage. Silence is very rarely neutral. So silence here indicates, I think, what we already know. The human condition has quickly fallen back into its sinful ways. It's disappointing, but it's no surprise. If we started reading the Bible from Genesis 1 with no understanding of Scripture, no understanding of what happens, no understanding of what comes next, if we started reading Genesis 1-1 and kept going, what do you think we would think? I think initially we'd be excited about how grand creation is. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia kind of pictures that, doesn't he? And he gives this grand picture of creation coming out of nothing. The Bible talks about this. We'd be excited And then our excitement would go a level further when we see that God created man and woman in his image to glorify him and have a unique relationship with him. But then something would happen. We'd be disappointed beyond belief when the first two humans chose to go their own way to rebel against their creator. And as we keep reading, things would continually get worse until God decides to reboot his creation We'd feel terrible for the people, but we might start understanding how much God hates sin. And even more so, the fact that he had given humanity everything that they needed, and yet we continue to sin. Then our excitement would return as Noah takes his first step off the ark, dry land. And we think, ah, this time, this time, he's going to finish right. He's going to finish well. After all, this is... Hollywood movie, isn't it? Tragedy happens, bad stuff happens, everything is at its lowest, and then all of a sudden, the good guy comes out on the end, right? That's what we want. But the excitement would be short-lived, because only a short time passed before Noah sinned and does the same thing that Adam did. 
But as with any story of the state of humanity, it's a little complicated here. Whenever someone reads this for the first time, they often wonder what the problem was. They often wonder, why is this such a big deal to be included in Scripture? It's the same thing that we wonder. Could the world really have been that bad that God had to destroy it through a flood? It's a little out of proportion to us. But when you really examine the wickedness found in the hearts of every person and how our desires are deceitful and corrupt, you start to see the reason behind it. Plus, you see that God gave people untold opportunities to repent. Untold opportunities, time and again. Repent. Trust in me. Turn from your wickedness. Turn to me. And people continue to reject it. And in our text today, we see two sinful things happen. First, Noah got drunk. Now, this passage does not speak to alcohol use, but it does talk a little bit about the problems of its abuse. In Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see the example of generational curses. God says this, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God promised to pass this curse down to someone's grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren for the sin of that one person. And we're dealing with difficult passages here. It's not pleasant to think of someone suffering for what someone three or four generations ago did. Let me tell you my story. As far as I can tell, I'm the first person in my direct line to not be an alcoholic. Every male, as far back as I can trace in my direct family line, my birth father, my grandfather, his father, and his father, were all alcoholics. And so I've made the conscious decision to stay away from it. It's not because I believe that drinking alcohol is a sin. I think sometimes it's unnecessary or unwise. And it's not because I've seen the horror that it's brought to the lives of many families. I don't drink because I know what it would do to me. But there's something else in my story. For as long as I can remember, I've suffered from something, whether it's uh, as a kid considered bipolar, as an adult with anxiety or depression, and I've suffered through that Uh, for my entire life, and and it gets better, it ebbs and flows, but it never really goes away. Now this relates to Genesis chapter 9, because studies have shown that there's a correlation between parents drinking alcohol or abusing alcohol and the children having anxiety or depression or other special issues. The question is, would I have what I have if my great-great-great-grandfather never touched alcohol? Maybe. But I do think that what happened generations ago affected me today. Now, see, we're independent people. We we say, well, we have a vote. We, We want to be able to decide our future and our lives. And anything outside of that makes us really uncomfortable. It's a very Western way of thinking. But the reality is that decisions that we make will last generations. The second sin that happened here is that Ham delighted in the shaming of his father. Again, we need to remove ourselves from an American or Western view of Scripture. Look at verse 22. After Noah passed out, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, for those of us who've never lived outside of the West, this doesn't connect with us. Shame in our culture means absolutely nothing. And if you don't believe me, think back a few decades to where those places of ill repute were. You know, the parking lots around back in the shady part of town. 
Drive down to Knoxville and look on the side of the road and see what you see. Parking lots wide open. There's no shame. We don't live in a culture that, that, that has any shame about anything. We certainly don't live in a culture that has a problem with shaming others either. In fact, this is a way that people build their name by shaming others. We call it roasting or talking trash. The person who is the quickest and the wittiest is the one who comes out on top. See, Noah shamed himself by getting drunk and lying naked for everyone to see. Now, there are people in our culture who celebrate that. To be honest, it's called being an Instagram celebrity, right? Shame yourself, do something foolish, and then post a picture of yourself to get some laughs. The stuff that people do now should be considered shameful, but instead it's celebrated. Now, here's what you need to know, though, about the culture of the ancient world. In Hebrew culture, who Moses was writing to... As in many African and Asian cultures today, bringing shame to oneself or to one's family is the worst possible thing that one can do. To shame someone was to question their worth or their dignity. Families in some culture will disown a child who's brought shame to their family. People who have shamed their family in some cultures will commit suicide because that's the only way to make things right in their mind. A few years ago, I met a mother who was telling me about her adult kids, and she was telling me these stories, and I thought the story had an ending that was going to be really bad, um, but instead she was celebrating what her children were doing, they were really horrible things, and she was celebrating all of these things. She was pleased, and her statement was, well, I'm just happy they're doing what makes them happy. Really terrible stuff that they were doing. Well, in a great book entitled Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, two scholars discussed how our prosperous Western culture has limited our understanding of Scripture, which was originally written to African, Asian, and Middle Eastern people. In the book, the authors tell one story. Um, one of the authors is a missionary, and he goes to a small island nation in Asia. And as he gets off the boat, he goes to the local church, and the elders of that church were meeting. And the topic of discussion that night was whether or not to admit a young couple um, back into fellowship. They had been excommunicated. And, and after a few minutes of, of hearing this conversation, the missionary jumped in and his mind was thinking they must have done something terrible. You know, they've denied the Trinity or something uh, horrific like that. But the, the couple wants to come back into the church. And so the missionary said to the elders, well, what exactly did they do? And one of the elders said, well, they got married. The missionary was thinking, what in the world? And he was from America. What in the world? They, they got married? And as the elders began to speak, they said, the problem was not their marriage. The problem was they did not have their family's permission. And they were adults. They were young, but they were adults. But their families did not approve of this marriage. Now, see, in our culture, we're like, get married. That's awesome. That's wonderful. We, we celebrate that. But in this couple, this church in a small island country in Asia, they took the fifth commandment seriously. Honor your father and mother, and getting married without their permission is not honoring your father or mother. And so the church did what they thought was the right thing to do was to excommunicate them. Now that was so strange to me as I read this book, and I even got upset at these elders who kicked out this couple. But then I started thinking this culture valued family far more than we do. Their parents were shamed by their children, and the church and the community addressed what they believed to be a sinful act. Now, here's what you need to understand about the world of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. It was far more like that Asian 
island than it is like the United States today. It's hardly anything what we know, hardly anything is similar to what Noah experienced. So keep that in mind as you think through this passage. See, in Exodus 20 and 28, which would come after Noah, it says that God has prohibited exposing the private parts of the body. This is God's standard all along. It's not that they're shameful, but exposing them is. So Noah did something wrong. He got drunk, and he exposed himself. And then Ham makes it worse, and in mocking his father's state, Ham brought great shame to Noah. Now remember, this is an ancient text. And in the ancient world, bringing shame to one's parents is at the top of the list of the worst things that one could do. So serious that it often brought death. See, now we think that's too severe. Death for shaming our parents? If that were true, I think every single person in here today would have been dead a long time ago. We've all done it. Again, remove the Western lens that you're looking through and do your best to go back to the days of Noah. And if you can't do that, let's go back to the very early church. They're more like us. They're advanced. They've given up these archaic principles, right? Shame and punishment? No, that's Old Testament. Well, let's read what James has to say. The half-brother of Jesus, is he's too severe? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. See, we demand grace when we've done something wrong, but we demand justice when someone else has done something wrong. If you've done one wrong thing, one sin, no matter how big or small, you are guilty of failing to meet God's standard because God demands perfection. Ham did something wicked and found himself cursed because of it. And we may not like it, but the Bible is clear that one sin is guilty of punishment. Is the sin that Ham did or that Noah did any different than what we do, though? Ham did something horrific in shaming his father, and we do the same thing whenever we sin. Our rebellion is shameful against the one who created us. We do our best to shame the name of God. But even knowing what Ham did, his crime was something far worse than shaming his father. What he did in uncovering his father and shaming him in front of his siblings, basically making a joke of his father's drunkenness and nakedness. More than that, it was an expression of contempt for God's standard of order. See, when we do something that we shouldn't, it shows that we don't value what, we value what we want over what society deems to be true. And again, if you need any help with this, when you're late for a meeting and the speed limit says 45, and you're going 60? Well, I can do it. I'm a good driver. You're showing contempt for the standards that the society has deemed to be appropriate. You figure you're a good enough driver to make it work, so you drive faster than the law allows. And you say, well, it's not a terrible crime like murder, but we're still breaking the law, aren't we? The community has determined that the speed limit is 45. And you've determined that you can go 60. You've disregarded the law. Because you think you know better. You've placed yourself above the will of the people and of the government. Now, regardless of how small this is, you've made the determination that you and getting to your meeting early is more valuable than others. Now, I use this example because I've done it. I'm late. I need to get there. I don't want to upset people, so I push the gas a little harder. But it's true. 
When we willingly go against authority, we are saying the restrictions and rules that have been placed on me don't matter. I get to decide for myself. And this is one of the biggest differences between Western culture and the rest of the world. Western culture is an individualistic culture. We get to determine who we vote for. We get to determine where we live. We get to determine where we go to school. We decide where to, to vote, where, where to go to church, where to have fun, what to do. But in many cultures, it's what is best for the culture, what is best for the community, what is best for society, what is best for my family. We do this with God, don't we? God has given us a plan for how we can be forgiven and adopted and then perfected to be like Jesus, but he also tells us how we have to live until Jesus returns. See, I look at these difficult passages and I prepare for hours a week and the church has thankfully given me the ability to do that. And I study and I, I prepare to, to do my best to come here on a Sunday morning to, to teach and to train after I've been doing it to myself all week. And I preach the word and I'm, I'm kind of on a, on a high after that. And I, I, I go home and you think, man, I'm, I'm bursting with excitement to obey Jesus. You hope that I'd be broken over the passages that I read and the sins that I see and amazed at what God has done through scripture and then through me. You hope that I would go home and be obedient. It doesn't take very long for that bitterness or a temper or anger or resentment to come raging out. Why? Because I am just as rebellious as you. I've experienced the grace of God in my life. I've seen God change people and make them new. I've been blessed to be part of the growth of many Christians. I've seen things happen that I could have never done on my own, and I can't even explain it. Yet every single day, I make decisions that in effect say, I am doing what I want today. And every time we do that, we spit in the face of God's established order. It's not a political statement, but God did not give us the Ten Commandments so that we can carve a stone and put it on a courtroom wall. That's not, that's not the purpose of the Ten Commandments. He gave us the Ten Commandments and all of the other commandments in Scripture for a purpose. They are to show that He is the Creator and that He expects His creation to live and believe a certain way. His creation is orderly. He's given a structure and authority in the home and in the church and for Ham, his father was this authority. But Ham decided that getting a laugh, mocking his father, making fun of him, embarrassing him, was more important than obeying God, being obedient to the respected order that God has created. Truth of the matter is, I'm no different than Ham. I rebelled in the same way that he did, thinking that I know what's right for me and that I can do whatever I want. I get the Bible, I believe it, I trust it, I know that it's God in inspired, inerrant word, but I'm often so consumed with what I want that I fail to live up to God's standards. And the truth of the matter is, is what I want becomes an idol in my own life. My happiness, my fulfillment, my personal goals, my bank account, my status, all of that becomes an idol in my life that I take God off and I try to put something else in his place. That's sin. That's what Ham was doing. 
But Ham's sin, like his father Noah's sin, meant that future generations would face the terrible fate of this curse. This maybe doesn't seem fair to you. Much of what God does doesn't seem fair to us, but here is something to consider. And this is maybe something that, that took me many years to figure out. All Ham needed to do was repent and God would have forgiven him of his sin. That's it. Isn't this what we preach? Isn't this the gospel that we proclaim to people? Yes, you're in prison for life because you've killed many people. But God will still save you if you trust in him. His great love and mercy towards you extends even to the worst of sinners. The Apostle Paul says that he was the chief of sinners, and yet God still saved him and used him to accomplish wonderful things, did he not? And it's important to know here that Ham did not repent. Verse 22 tells us that Ham is the father of Canaan. Keep reading through the Old Testament, and you'll see how Canaan was seen as an enemy to Israel. In fact, the land that Canaan inhabited was the land promised to Israel by God. And in Numbers, God tells Moses to lead the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites, destroy their land and idols and religious places, and take possession of the land. And this unfolds in Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. Do you see the problem that the sin back in Genesis chapter 9 created for those people down the road? Well, without spending a lot of time on this, the point here is that Noah's sin led to Ham's sin, which led to the sin and downfall of a nation. Now, will your sin do that? No one can say, but I can say this, that if Ham were to have repented from his sin and done what was needed to be done, things would have ended differently. Now, at the risk of sounding like a TV commercial, what does Ham have to do with you? Ham, capital H. Don't be like Ham. I'm not even talking about just what he did to his father. I'm talking about the downward path that he put generations on. His sin brought judgment on himself and also to his descendants. But listen to me carefully. I'm not telling you that you can stop sinning because you can't. You will do things that distort the character of God. You will do things that twist his design order. You will do things that disappoint him. So when I say don't be like Ham, I'm not saying stop sinning. A lot of pulpits say that. There's one church that had above their back door a sign that says, go and sin no more, as if that we can actually, and I know those are the words of Jesus, but as if we can step outside here and be perfected and stop sinning. Don't be like Ham in how you respond when you sin. Yes, we should fight against our sin. Yes, we should hate it with all that we have. Yes, we should hate what it does to ourselves and what it does to others. But until that day comes when you're made like Jesus, you will not be able to overcome your flesh entirely. I tell my children, I'm not upset with you when you make mistakes. Where I get upset and where I get sometimes even angry with my sons is when they do something wrong and they realize that what they did was wrong and then immediately go back to doing the same thing again. That's where I get upset. That's where I get angry with them. I get upset when they don't learn from their mistakes. And Ham here behaved like a child when he committed the sin. And after, as well as his descendants, followed his father. But the truth of the matter is that Ham needed to do what we need to do. He should have repented of his sin, and he would have been forgiven. 
This morning as we studied this passage and, and thinking through my own life and my own heart, uh, I'm wondering, am I living my life like Ham lived his? Ignoring what I've done and instead looking to see what I can get out of my own life. In Luke 13, Jesus says something that we all need to hear today. He says this, there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and Jesus answered them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Ham didn't repent, and he, was, uh, he perished with the nation that followed after him. And the question before us today in looking at this is to say, not the idea of some image of, of, of Ham shaming his dad, that certainly plays a role in it, but a bigger picture of this is that Ham disobeyed God. Ham disrespected God's created order. And so the question that we have for us today is, have we done the same thing? Have we come to God with saying, here's all the good stuff I've done, or have we come to God with a, a broken and contrite heart over what we've done to him? If we haven't, then Jesus warns us. These are the words of Jesus, not the words of Ryan, but the words of Jesus says that we will perish. And my only plea to you this morning is to come to Jesus. Come to the one who did what Adam and Noah could not do. Repent. Put your trust in the hands of God and he promises his judgment against you and your sin will be removed. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we come to you today thanking you for this passage in scripture that, that's a little strange and a little difficult, but we are so grateful that we can see the gospel played out in it. Lord, we are, are grateful and we're thankful that this story, this true story, this historical event points us more and more to Christ. That we cannot save ourselves, that nothing good that we can do can grant us the salvation that we so desperately need, but you sent your son to live for us and to die for us. And so, Father, as we leave today, Lord, help us to, to, to think about our own lives and our own hearts in light of what we see in your word. Help us to live a life of repentance. Help us to confess our sins and to serve you and to make it right. Father, we are so grateful for all the gifts that you've given us. 